Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 89. Last week, I covered the ordination of the first priest, the animal sacrifices, and the bronze wash basin, all laid out in this part of Exodus. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the census and the accompanying tax, along with the first batch of anointing oil. And with that, let's get started. In Exodus 30, after the altar of incense, is the temple tax. I skipped over it in the last episode for continuity, so now I'm circling back. The temple tax is initially presented as a sort of census tax, with a half-shekel levied on every adult male. From the text, The Lord spoke to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, at registration all of them shall give a ransom for their lives to the Lord, so that no plague may come upon them for being registered. This is what each one of you who is registered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Pausing for a second. Parenthetically, at least in the New Revised Standard, in the King James versions, we're told that the shekel is equal to 20 jerrys. The NIV has the same reference, just without the parentheses. Unpausing. This is what each one of you who is registered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Each one who is registered, from twenty years old and upward, shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall give no more, and the poor shall give no less than the half shekel. When you bring this offering to the Lord to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the Israelites and shall designate it for the service of the tent of meeting, Before the Lord, it will be a reminder to the Israelites of the ransom given for your lives. But the half-shekel amount was apparently a bit fluid, as in Nehemiah in chapter 10. The amount was reduced to a third of a shekel. Keep in mind that the time of the prophet Nehemiah was about eight centuries after the Exodus. Later, the rules concerning the tax were refined, and the priests were exempted from paying. The monies collected, as the name suggests, were directed towards the maintenance and upkeep of the temple. After the Exodus, this would be the singular temple in Israel, eventually becoming the first, then second temples built in Jerusalem. Non-priests, though, even those in far-flung places like Babylon, were expected to pay. Josephus recorded that at the end of the third decade A.D., Many tens of thousands of Babylonian Jews guarded the convoy taking the tax to Jerusalem, and this was the time period when Jesus was in the area. Hold that thought for a couple of minutes. The occupying Romans would attempt to halt payments of the tax before the Jewish War, the war that led to the destruction of the Second Temple. It's thought that they did this as part of their customs and duties policies. The Roman Senate had outlawed the export of gold and silver, but Jewish adherents in Italy continued to pay the temple tax, so gold and silver flowed from the Italian peninsula to Jerusalem. Then, in 62 BC, Valerius Flaccus, the governor of the Roman province of Asia, issued an edict forbidding the Jews of his province from sending the tax to Jerusalem. Of course, 
if what Josephus wrote about 100 years later was true, the edict was either ignored or overturned. As for the Roman province of Asia, it was essentially the western portion of what is today Turkey. The tax would continue in essentially the same form through at least the time of Christ. Matthew chapter 17 reads, When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? When Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and me. End quote. The story is only found in Matthew and none of the other Gospels, and it appears to have been at essentially the same rate, half a shekel per head. So, no inflationary increases over the 1,000 plus years. There are a few other implications in the passage. Before I get to those, note that Capernaum was a fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. In some translations, the coinus is stator, which was about equal to four drame, and would therefore pay the tax for both Peter and Jesus. In the passage in Matthew, the payment of the tax is used as a test of political loyalty. Essentially, the tax collector was trying to determine if Peter and Jesus were loyal, or at least tax-paying citizens, or if they were potential seditious rebels. Those who oppose or withhold the paying of taxes, throughout all of history, at least throughout the history of taxation, non-payers are essentially questioning the legitimacy of whatever authority is imposing the tax. Of course, usually a government authority. And just like that, you see both monetary and government policy throughout the text of the Old and New Testaments. Some 40 years later, after the Peter and Jesus story, and after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple tax was converted to a new Roman tax on the Jews, known as the Ficus Judaicus, with all the monies collected flowing into the Roman treasury. Backing up to the passage in Exodus, there is a warning of a forthcoming plague sent by God as judgment. Some believe that the registering of the people in the census was seen in the eyes of God as being sinful, a sin that was offset by the money collected being given to the temple. You, of course, can form your own opinion. I certainly have mine. Note that the tax structure was different than our current U.S. tax structure. It's not a percent of income, or tiered, but instead is the same amount per head. Well, adult male head. I found some research that suggests it was about equal to two days' wages for the lowest paid field hand. It was also rationalized as being a signal that all were equal in the eyes of God. One curious parallel before moving on. Exodus 30 aligns a census with a tax, and in the book of Luke, we see where Joseph with Mary in tow traveled to Bethlehem to be counted as part of a census, no mention of taxation. 
Orifacensis is sinful. In Exodus, after the half-shekel census tax is the recipe for the anointing oil, and we're actually given the recipe, exactly as God gave it to Moses, from the text. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, measured by the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the covenant, and the table and all of its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them, so that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, in order that they may serve me as priest. You shall say to the Israelites, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be used in any ordinary anointing of the body, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an unqualified person, shall be cut off from the people. End quote. The main purpose of anointing with the holy anointing oil was to sanctify, to set the anointed person or object apart as holy. Originally, the oil was used exclusively for the priest and the tabernacle articles, but by the time of the prophet Samuel, it is being applied to the kings of Israel. As seen in 1 Samuel, when the book's namesake applies oil to the head of Saul when he's coronated as king of Israel. Something similar to the oil was used on queens, as recorded in the second chapter of Esther, where oil of myrrh is used as a purification ritual to the new queen to King Ahasuerus. From the text, the turn came for each girl to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women. Since this was the regular period of their cosmetic treatment, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics for women. End quote. I'll leave it up to you to figure out what this was all about. Throughout the time period, it was forbidden to be applied to a commoner and to an outsider, and that's not all except for those specifically authorized. No one else, Israelite or not, could even produce the oil. In their society, when a prophet was anointed, it was because before he was a prophet, he was first a priest. When a non-king was anointed, like when Elijah anointed Hazael in Jahu, both in 1 Kings 19, this was an indication that Hazael was to become king of Aram, and Jahu was to become king of Israel. Outside of both the Old Testament and ancient Israel, it was commonplace for kings of that time and place to be anointed with ritual oil. Later in the New Testament, in the fifth chapter of James, we see that the rules have been changed, where the sick are told to call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And about that recipe... 
it called for 500 shekels of pure myrrh, which is over 13 pounds, or 6 kilograms, then 250 shekels of sweet cinnamon, almost 7 pounds, or 3 kilograms, 250 shekels aconibazum, so again 7 pounds, or 3 kilograms, 500 shekels of cassia, another 13 pounds, or 6 kilograms, and a single hen of olive oil, which is about one and a half gallons, or six liters. I'll cover these ingredients, especially the ones you're probably less familiar with, in a couple of minutes. In ancient Israel, and taking into consideration the aroma from the burnt fat, and despite all of this, it appears that the oil-slash-fat that was most highly regarded was olive oil, and it was extremely useful in their society as a lotion, a fuel for lighting lamps, for consumption, and many other purposes. So, it should not be terribly surprising that scented olive oil was selected to be holy anointing oil for the Israelites. Of course, it also didn't hurt that it was readily available. In some Christian traditions, it's thought that this oil exists through today. But before covering that, do know that it's thought the same vessel used by Moses and Aaron for the first batch of anointing oil is thought to have been constantly refilled before ever running empty throughout history. So, similar to if you never let the gas tank in your car run completely dry, there could be, at least theoretically, some of the original fuel in there. Original liquid that would come into contact with and mix with whatever is added. In the Armenian church, the anointing oil in this connection with the original is of particular importance. In their tradition, a portion of the sanctified anointing oil blessed by Moses in Exodus 30 still remained when Jesus walked in Jerusalem. They believe that Christ himself blessed this oil and then gave a portion of it to Thaddeus. Thaddeus would then take the holy oil to Armenia. Once it was on site, Thaddeus healed King Abkar of a terrible skin disease by anointing him. Later Thaddeus would become Saint Thaddeus. He's told of having buried a bottle of the holy anointing oil in Taran, essentially in the central southern portion of that country. The bottle was buried underneath an evergreen tree. Later, Saint Gregory the Illuminator, the patron saint of the Armenian church, lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. It's said that Gregory uncovered the buried bottle, mixed it with additional oil, and blessed it. Fast forward to our modern era, when a new batch of oil is prepared and blessed, a few drops of the last batch are always added, so that a microscopic portion of the original, the one mixed by Moses, then blessed by Jesus, then buried by Thaddeus, and uncovered by Gregory, well, a portion of it remains. The church has been following this tradition for the last 1,700 years. As for the Armenian oil, its base is olive oil, and added to it are 48 different aromatics. A new batch is mixed up every seven years and then sent to all Armenian churches around the world. A similar tradition can be found in the Assyrian church, with a parallel claim of oil handed down, this time from the original apostles from oil that they personally consecrated. Like the Jewish and Armenian traditions, when the supply gets low, they mix up some more, add it to the original, and let it all mix together. 
The journey of this apostle oil is worth a bit of time. It starts with John the Baptist giving John the Evangelist a container holding water from Christ's baptism. The water is said to have been collected by John the Baptist from water dripping from Christ after his immersion into the Jordan River. Later, at the Last Supper, it's said that Jesus gave each disciple a loaf, meaning a loaf of bread. But he gave John two loaves, with specific direction to eat only one and to save the other. Then, at the crucifixion, John collected the water from the Lord's side in a container vessel. He also collected a bit of Christ's blood with the extra loaf. After the descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the disciples took the container of water, mixed it with oil, and each apostle took a horn of it. They then ground up the loaf and added flour and salt to it. Each apostle took a portion of the holy oil and the holy bread which were distributed to every land they missioned to. One of these horns ended up at the Assyrian church. The holy horn is refilled annually by a bishop on Maundy Thursday. They restrict the oil in this horn to ordination and sanctification rituals. The apostolic making of myrrh is also found in the Egyptian Coptic church, with some 34 new batches being made throughout history. The church established by St. Thomas in India has a similar story, with St. Thomas Christians claiming to still have this oil to this day. But it's time to circle back to the oil and its ingredients. There is one ingredient that has yet to be positively identified, cane balsam. The Old Testament suggests that it was an aromatic cane or grass, maybe imported from a distant land via the spice trade routes, perhaps related to a plant that grows naturally in Israel. But the identification really depends on who you ask, with several different possibilities floating around. One of these is essentially a translation of cane balsam to cane balsam. Ancient sources, including the Septuagint, identify this with the plant variously referred to as sweet cane or sweet flag, and sometimes called colimus. According to Theophrastus, a 4th century BC Greek philosopher, a similar species grew in Sinai and ancient Israel. Another possibility is rasha grass from India. This plant resembles a red straw and is a variety of sephaphagon, with one subvariety being Indian lemongrass. Some have pushed the belief that kanebasam was hemp, or cinnamon bark, or Egyptian marsh cane among many others. The next ingredient is one I've briefly touched on in the past, myrrh. It's a natural resin extracted from a small thorny tree. At the time, well really, all the time, it's been used as a perfume, incense, embalming agent, and medicine. It's even sometimes mixed with wine so that it can be easily ingested. As for these medicinal uses, even through today, it's claimed to treat indigestion, ulcers, colds, cough, asthma, lung congestion, arthritis pain, and various other conditions. Similar to the way syrup is extracted from a maple tree, in order to get myrrh, a tree is cut through the bark and into the sapwood. Then the resin drains. From this, myrrh gum is produced. This gum eventually becomes hard, waxy, and yellowish, but can range from clear to opaque. 
It also has a glossy appearance and darkens as it ages. Pliny the Elder, the 1st century AD Roman author, wrote about liquid myrrh, sometimes called stacked, and claimed this was the ingredient in the Jewish holy incense and anointing oil. His writings also claim that it was highly valued, which isn't much of a surprise. Unfortunately, what this liquid myrrh actually was has been lost to history. Thinking back to all the episodes on the history of Egypt, you might recall that the 5th dynasty king Sahur sent what's thought to have been the earliest expedition to the land of Punt, or at least the one that's first recorded. Punt, sometimes pronounced Put, is thought to have been the same as the modern-day country of Somalia, in a region known as the Horn of Africa. The expedition returned with vast supplies of myrrh and frankincense, among other valuable minerals and extracts, and wild animals like cheetahs, unusual birds, giraffes, and baboons, not to forget other items like ebony, ivory, and animal skins. It's even thought that myrrh trees were brought back and planted in the king's personal garden. And you know if an expedition is going to be so legendary that it's still discussed some thousands of years later, well, it does have to be legendary. Circling back to the Old Testament, many hundreds of years before the mixing of the holy anointing oil in Exodus, the gum was thought to have been one of the items Joseph's brothers traded him for when he began his fortuitous journey to Egypt. And, of course, myrrh makes appearances in the New Testament at Jesus' birth, crucifixion, and burial. When I get to that part of the history, there'll be a deeper dive. The next ingredient is cinnamon, which I, at least, am infinitely more familiar with. It's sourced from the inner bark of several tree species, and obviously is used for both its flavor and aroma, both of which emanate from an oil found in the bark. Next is cassia, which is another essential oil. Besides the mention in Exodus, Psalms 45 tells of how it's used as a fragrance for clothing. Ezekiel 27 mentions it as being traded internationally. Like cinnamon, it too is known for its aroma, described as being strong and spicy, but I've also seen it described as being sweet. It's thought to have been one of the first spices cultivated. The plant is a close relative to cinnamon, but there are differences. It tends to be distilled from the stems and bark of a shrub, not a tree. Besides its use in the temple oil, throughout history, cassia has been applied directly to skin as a calming balm. And that's it for the anointing oil, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll begin with Exodus 31 and the two lads named by God to lead the construction of the Ten of Meeting and everything found within. The guys named Bezuel and Oholiab you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be directed to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. 
finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.